So we've come a long way in the last couple of decades in terms of understanding special needs children and children who struggle with learning disabilities, but we have a ways to go. And there are a number of things we need to do as a field, parents and teachers working together, in order to truly serve these kids. One thing we need to understand, particularly as professionals, is the tremendous impact that learning problems have on the family. I do a workshop for families called On the Waterbed, the Special Needs Child in the Family. And the reason I call it On the Waterbed is because of an analogy that I draw. A family of five is like five people lying side by side in a waterbed. Whenever one person moves, everyone feels the ripple. And that's the way it is in a family. If one member of the family is having trouble, dad's having trouble at work, mom's having trouble at work, one of the kids is having trouble at school, if one member of the family is having trouble, everyone in the family feels that. And children with special needs can have a tremendous impact on the family. And we need to do more work with siblings. We need to do more work with grandparents. We need to do more work with the community at large, but particularly with the families in terms of coming to grips and understanding the special needs of this child. One of the things we're realizing now is that moms and dads have a great deal of difficulty communicating. It's always been a mystery to me, the number of parents I've worked with, husbands and wives, intact married couples who agree on everything in their life except their special needs child. And as soon as that child's name comes on the agenda, the swords come out and it's World War III. And now we're finally realizing that the reason for that is that when a parent gets the diagnosis of learning disabilities, when a parent gets a diagnosis that the child has a learning problem, mom and dad tend to go through a series of, of stages. They might feel angry, they might feel guilty, they might go into mourning, they might go into blame. And so the mom and dad are bouncing around in these stages as they come to grips with this problem. But what happens is there's no reason to believe that mom and dad are going to be at the same stage at the same time. So mom is at one stage and dad is at another. And for the first time in their married lives, they can't communicate. Dad's feeling isolated. No one understands this kid except me. No one understands this kid except us. Circle the wagons around the kid. It's our family against the world. He's feeling isolated. Mom's feeling flight. She's looking for simple answers to complicated questions. You say, wait a second, honey, wait a second. Nobody understands this kid except you and me, and I'm not all that sure about you. <laughs> we need to understand as teachers and professionals working with these families, these families are in crisis. Their kid is struggling in school every day. And you know what? When people are in crisis, they don't respond the way you'd like them to all the time. They don't respond the way you'd like them to. We need to understand that sometimes parents will get involved in negative interactions with professionals. My advice to my colleagues is take it seriously, but don't take it personally. Don't take it personally. They don't mean it personally. They're going through a very, very difficult time in their lives. So we need to have a better understanding of parents. One of the things that we've done that we need to continue to work on is one of the things we take great pride in special education is our multidisciplinary teams. We have these multidisciplinary teams now. It gets to the point now that if you want to change a special needs kid's recess, you've got to have the meeting in a room this size. You've got to bring together every man, woman, and child who's ever met this kid in order to make the smallest decisions. And multidisciplinary teams, we thought, were going to be the answer to this problem. They're actually becoming a problem themselves. What I recommend is we knock off the multidisciplinary teams. We don't have multidisciplinary teams, but we change those to transdisciplinary teams. Multidisciplinary means many disciplines where you come to that meeting in your uniform and you're there to defend your, your department and represent your department. Transdisciplinary, multidisciplinary means many disciplines. Transdisciplinary means across disciplines, where everybody comes into the room, you take the uniforms off and you sit there and everyone is there for one reason and that is to advocate for the child. 
Not to advocate for your department, not to advocate for your budget, but to advocate for the child. And the problem gets thrown on the table and everybody jumps on it. At the school I ran in Cape Cod for years, beautiful school, beautifully decorated, the parent association, all these Cape Cod antiques, beautifully decorated school, except for one room, the room I decorated, our conference room where we met with parents and teachers and met with people from other schools to discuss kids. And in that room, there were no beautiful wall hangings, no plants in the corner, none of that. All there was was a table and 12 chairs and one sign hanging on the wall. Because I wanted anyone who come into that conference room to talk about kids, to look at that sign and understand those are the rules when you walk into that room. I love reading um, old proverbs from old societies, and I found an African proverb one time that was so perfect, I had a sign made and I put it up in the wall, and the sign says this, when elephants fight, it's the grass that gets trampled. When elephants fight, it's the grass that gets trampled. Two great big two-ton rogue elephants meet in the jungle. They're banging heads and banging heads. They're so strong and so powerful and well-protected with that bony structure in the front of their skull. They can bang heads for two hours and then walk away unscathed, ready to fight another day. But in the meantime, every blade of grass, every shrub, every piece of vegetation is trampled and gone forever. And that's the way it is in the lives of kids. If the adults in a kid's life are fighting, it's ultimately the kid who gets hurt. If you're having an ego thing with your teacher, if the two teachers, the English teacher and the math teacher don't get along, and every time they go to a meeting they get their dukes up, fine. You're big and strong. She's big and strong. Have your battle, but understand you've hurt a kid. When elephants fight, it's the grass that gets trampled, and we have a long way to go in terms of turning our multidisciplinary meetings into transdisciplinary meetings. One thing we need to understand is how ineffective it is to use punishment with these kids. Punishment does not work with most of our kids. It just is ineffective. The only way to change a kid's behavior is through positive reinforcement. Positive feedback changes behavior. Negative feedback only stops behavior. You won't change a kid's behavior by punishing them. It makes me a little bit crazy when I talk to a teacher and the teacher will say, I've kept him in for recess 15 days in a row and he still isn't doing his math homework. Well, let's circle a slow learner in this picture, okay? <laughs> it's not working. Try something else. I think in every teacher's lounge in the country should be assigned that Franklin Roosevelt used to have in the White House in his cabinet room, and he used to say this, do something. If it works, do more of it. If it doesn't work, do something else. I've kept him in for recess 14 days in a row, and he still isn't doing his homework. Well, and try something else, because that's not working. You see, the only punishment only works as long as the threat of punishment exists. And when the threat of punishment doesn't exist, punishment no longer works. So if you control your kids by punishing them all the time, that's great. They'll behave for you. But as soon as you step out of the room, or you or the mom and dad, you go out for the evening, they're going to be hell on wheels with the babysitter because there's no threat of punishment. So we need to understand that punishment doesn't work. And the last thing that we've learned and we need to continue to work on is what we call paralinguistics. In the video, you remember, I talk about the little boy who gets in trouble, and he says, I but I didn't do anything wrong. What we're beginning to understand is the problems many of our kids have are in the area of paralinguistics, and that is they don't understand how tone of voice and body language can change what they say. Suppose at the end of, this, at the end of the seminar, I went like this. Boy, I had a great time with you guys today. <laughs> what did the word say? What did the word say? The word said, I had a great time with you guys today. Was that my message? 
Nope. My body language changed the entire thing. The way I stood, the tone of my voice, the way I looked at you, the words very clearly say I had a great time with you guys today. But because I ch- a tone of voice and body language completely changed that message. What we're realizing now is kids with learning problems don't get it. They don't know when you're being sarcastic. They don't know when they are being sarcastic. So the teacher says, I want you to listen to me. And the kid says, I'm listening to you. Teacher says, don't you talk to me that way. Get down to the principal's office. Kid goes down to the principal's office. Principal says, what are you doing here? I don't know. I told her I was listening to her. She threw me out of class. <laughs> but the reality is to that kid, he sees no difference between I'm listening to you and I'm, li- I'm listening to you. He sees no difference. So we've come a long way, but we have a long way to go. Fat City has three constituencies, regular educators, parents, and special educators. And in closing, let me give a message to all three constituencies. First, to my friends in regular education. My friend Nina, sitting here in the front row, is a special educator. And I'll tell you something about Nina without even knowing her. She's a marshmallow. She's trained to be a marshmallow. You see, those of us in special education are trained to make kids succeed. It's our job, it's Nina's job to prepare work at each child's level. That's always, always uh, challenging, but never overwhelming. Success is built into special ed. Any kid who goes into her class knows that that kid cannot fail. As a matter of fact, if a kid goes into Nina's class and can't do the work, it's her fault. She prepared the wrong work because, because uh, special education is all about work, putting work together on an individualized basis for each kid. So if the kid can't do the work in Nina's class, then Nina made a mistake. Success is built into special ed. Kid can't fail in special ed. Nina knows that. Her principal knows that. Her supervisor knows that. And guess who else knows that? The kid knows that. So when the kid goes out and has success in Nina's class, how much does that mean to him? About this much. He'd like to please her, so it means something to him, but not that much. But if he can go out to the regular education class, to the math class, the science class, the regular fourth grade, if he can go to the regular education class and be successful, how much does that mean to him? Like this much. You see, it's kind of like prom night. You come walking down the stairs prom night, your mother says, oh, honey, you look beautiful big deal. Your mother always tells you you look beautiful. (laughs) But you go to the prom and the president of the senior class tells you you look beautiful, all of a sudden you feel beautiful. Those of us in regular education are like the president of the senior class to these kids. The great irony about the inclusion movement is this. There's a great deal that Nina and me and other people in special ed, there's a great deal we can do to improve the kids' skills and improve the kids' knowledge base. But there's very little we can do to improve their self-concept. If their self-concept's going to improve, it's got to come from you folks in regular ed. And if we don't think that self-concept and self-esteem is the biggest problem we face in special ed today, we find a disproportionate number of kids with alcohol, alcohol abuse, drug abuse, eating disorders, suicidal behavior, self-destructive behavior, gangs, juvenile delinquency. You see a disproportionate of learning disabled kids in every one of those populations. What do they all have in common? Self-esteem. You don't become a drunk at 14 if you feel good about yourself. You don't starve yourself to death at 13 if you feel good about yourself. You don't take the ultimate solution and take your own life at 11 if you feel good about yourself. They all have to do with self-esteem and the great irony to my friends in regular education, we need to understand the great irony of the inclusion movement is this. There's very little we in special ed can do to build the self-esteem of these kids. If their self-esteem is going to improve, it's got to come from our friends and colleagues in regular education. Is that fair? I don't know, but it's the way of the world. And that's my message for regular educators. For parents, I see many parents, especially children, children with learning disabilities, who try to become experts in learning disabilities. That runs contrary to advice I give parents. 
I say to parents, don't try to become an expert in learning disabilities. Try to become an expert in your child's learning disability. Become the expert in your child. Many times parents will say to me, I, I know more about learning disabilities than the child's third grade teacher does. Yeah, it's your kid. It's your kid. If your child had diabetes, you'd expect to have to educate people in his life about diabetes. The reality is it's your child. Become an expert in your child, but take your place at the table. The bottom line is I have been proven wrong by parents so many times in my career. I have such tremendous faith in the, in, in the intuition of parents. As a parent, you've known this kid longer than any professional has. You have loved him more than any professional ever will. And you're going to be with this kid for the rest of his life. Take your seat at the table. Take your seat at the table and be an advocate for your child. I hate to see parents and school systems go at each other. I really do, and there's too much of that in the United States today. But I also see many parents who take great, great pride in the fact I'm the lone wolf. The principal at my school is afraid of me. I walk in the front door, he walks out there, he runs out the back door. I'm the lone wolf. You know what? You're not going to get anything done as a lone wolf. You've got to get together with other parents who have the same interests and work together to make things happen. If I take one finger and poke Kim with one finger, she's not going to feel it. But if I put five of them together, she's going to know she's been hit. And you need to go together. You need to go, not, in a, not in, a, in a combative way, but go to your school committee meetings as a group of special ed parents and say, hey, look, not every parent in this district want, is, cares about how high the SAT scores are. There are some parents in this district who are here to advocate for special needs kids as well, and we are together. We're a group of us together. So as parents, become an expert in your child. Become an expert in your child so that you can advocate for the child before she can advocate for herself. One of the things that we need to understand as parents and educators is this is a very generic term. Uh, these kids with learning problems are not only different from the general population, they're also very different one from another. The analogy I draw is the table of the elements in chemistry, where you've got 110 elements that exist in the real world, but you can combine those elements to make completely unique compounds. Um, and you can combine by taking this one and this one and this one, you combine it, you make a totally different compound than combining three other elements. Well, it's the same way with, le with kids with learning problems. There are basically about 110 symptoms that learning disabled kids can have. No kid can have all of them. Uh, one is hyperactivity, which is too much activity. Another is hypoactivity, which is lethargy. You can't have both. You can't be hyperactive and hypoactive at the same time. So most kids have between 8 and 10 of the symptoms. And when you consider there are 110 symptoms to choose from, any kid with a learning problem can have 8 to 12 of those symptoms. There is nearly an infinite variety of combinations. I went to a school system once and they proudly showed me the individualized educational plan that they had written for all 10 of their kids in the fifth grade. And now aren't they fortunate? 110 symptoms to choose from. Any kid can, be, have eight, eight, can have between 8 and 12 of the symptoms and 10 kids with the same cluster of symptoms were born into that town the same year. I mean, aren't they lucky? No, they're not lucky. They're not being honest with themselves. It's virtually impossible for any two kids in God's green earth to have the same cluster of symptoms. One of the big disputes and debates right now in the United States is high-stakes testing. Um, my concern as a special educator is a whole high-stakes high testing movement was done without consideration for our kids, and special needs kids are now being caught in those gears. The whole idea of high-stakes testing, in my mind, is built on a very, very shaky premise, and that is that kids do their best work when they compete against others. The research is so clear on this that the only person motivated by competition is the person who thinks they have the chance of winning. 
Therefore, a fourth grade teacher, if you decide to teach spelling by using spelling bees, contests, quizzes, and games, the only kid you're motivating is a good speller. The kid who doesn't need to be motivated in that area, and the kid you're not reaching is a kid you're trying to reach. So we keep trying to motivate kids by, by um, having them compete against each other, and it's not motivating for the kids we're trying to reach. Uh, and motivation, competition doesn't motivate people in all areas of their lives. Me, you want to play golf with me? We'll play like it's hot. Then we'll quit. I don't care who wins or loses. Tennis, I play tennis once in a while. I don't, I don't know how to keep score. I ask the other guy to keep score. Softball, we'll play softball until the picnic lunch comes. And we'll have, I mean, I'm totally non-competitive in those particular areas. Trivial pursuit, I'll rip your face off. I'll lie, I'll cheat, and nobody goes to bed until I've won. Because that's, that's one area of my life where I enjoy competing. And if you think about it, there are areas of your life where you enjoy competing and areas where you don't. You might enjoy running, but you'd never enter a running race. You'd never enter a race. And yet we expect kids to be motivated by competition and spelling and math and science and history. And the bottom line is they're not. They're simply not. I know that I was not a good speller as a youth. And I actually can be pretty competitive, but I know that in the fifth grade when they said it's time to do a spelling bee, first thing I did was come up with the stupidest way I could spell the thing to make sure everyone knew I was just kidding about the fact that I couldn't spell it so I could sit down and they wouldn't ask me about it anymore. And it was only later on when I realized I wanted to write, I wanted to do these things, that stuff that I need to do, that became the motivating factor for me and then I, I figured out how to do it. But I can't help but think that there might have been a reasonable way to motivate me to do it in the fifth grade too. The more competitive and the more we're evaluating kids and the more we're encouraging those kind of competitions in the classroom, um, the more we're knocking the risk-taking out of the kids that, that aren't as good as the other kids at that particular thing or can't perform in the classroom in the way that um, they're being evaluated. And um, I, it's, you've talked about risk-taking, and um, it's very sad to see these kids who won't take a risk. Well, I won't take a risk at things that I know I'm not good at. One of this business of being a marshmallow is being a soft place for them to fall. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me one of the things, one of the jobs of the tutor or the whoever is to supply the soft place to fall so that it can learn that it's okay to take risks, that they, they can succeed, and if you up the ante, then okay, I'd take a flyer. Yeah. You don't have anything to lose, so learn what it feels like to take a chance. Uh, bullying, of course, is a huge issue now in education, and, and the re there's some re real reasons for it. Uh, when I was a boy, uh, if you were being bullied, you could get your big brother to go after the bully, or you could let the air out of his tires. Now you can go home and get an automatic weapon. And every incident of major school violence has been committed in the United States, has been committed by those kids who have been bullied and picked on for years. When Columbine happened, tremendous tragedy, changed education forever. So what we can do about it is really deal with anti-bullying. And, and bullying is not a rite of passage. Bullying is something that needs to be dealt with. I even remember saying to you one time, Kit, you came home from school and you said, the kids are picking on me in the school bus. And I said, well, who hit you? And you said, well, nobody hit me, but they were calling me names. And I said to you so ineffectively, and I apologize for you, uh, to you for this, I said, you know, sticks and stones will break your bones. As long as nobody's hitting you, you're okay. What we're finding is that the overwhelming amount of bullying that's done is verbal bullying, is, is spreading rumors. And now with the Internet, I'm working with a school system in the Midwest that's having tremendous difficulty because kids are spreading rumors through the Internet. It used to be if you wanted to spread a rumor about another girl, you'd whisper to the kids in the school bus. Now you can type up a letter and hit a keystroke and send it to 300 kids and ruin this kid's reputation. 
So we need to do that, and we, on the other hand, we also need to sensitize kids. Um, in fact, people use Fat City many times to show to classes, to sensitize them to what the kids are going through and use some of the activities. So we, we need to make kids more aware of it because the bottom line is whether the teacher accepts a kid is secondary to the, to the point as to whether the kids accept each other. I teach these students with all my heart and passion. I love teaching these kids, but on a day-to-day -day basis, I sometimes forget why I'm doing this because the work is not easy. And by listening to Rick's lecture this morning, it reminded me why I'm doing this. In closing, a message to my colleagues in special education. I ran a very special school called the Riverview School in Cape Cod for many years. And we used to have an absolutely spectacular graduation weekend. The first day I took over the school, I said to the staff, we are no longer going to deal with learning disabled adolescents. We're going to deal with adolescents with learning disabilities. They are adolescents first. They ought to have a prom. They ought to have sports. They ought to have a school newspaper. They ought to have a yearbook. They ought to have all the things that we had as adolescents. They shouldn't have to. They shouldn't have to sacrifice their adolescence at the author of their learning disability. And one day after one of our, one Sunday morning after a, a beautiful graduation ceremony we had, this gentleman came up to me from the audience, and I didn't know him. He introduced himself. He was the uncle of one of our students. And he said, I want to thank you and your staff for what you've done. He said, our nephew was such a beautiful little boy. He was such a happy little boy. And then he went to school, and his life basically fell apart. And then he came to your school, and you people made him beautiful again. I opened the mail that Sunday, and I opened up the, the envelope, and it was a book of Jewish folklore that one of my rabbi friends sent me. And I started going through the book, and I found a piece of folklore that was so apropos to that conversation I'd had earlier in the morning. And let me share it with you in closing, if I can. It's a story about a king. And the king lived in a kingdom and controlled the kingdom, but he wasn't a rich king. He didn't have a big castle or anything like that, but he was very beloved by his people. And the favorite thing, his favorite thing to do, was to take a few of his men on horseback and go from village to village throughout the kingdom and visit his people. And when he went on these tours, he brought with him the only thing of any value, the only thing of any value that his family owned. They didn't have jewels and a beautiful castle, but he had this stone that had been in his family for generations. And it was a great big stone, and it was round on the bottom and flat on the top. And for generations, generations of royal rock polishers had polished the surface of that stone. So the flat surface of the stone was so smooth and shiny, you could actually see yourself in it. And no one had ever seen anything like this before. And he'd carry it in his pouch. It had been in the family for generations. He carries it in his pouch, and he'd go to a village, and all the people would circle him, and he'd show them the beautiful stone. And he pulled into this village one day, and he's showing the stone to everyone. And this little boy, about eight years old, said, Your Highness, can I hold the stone? And all the townspeople said, no, no, don't let him hold it. He could drop it. And the king said, no, he should know what it's like to hold something so beautiful. And he took the stone and he gave it to the young boy. And the young boy's holding it and he's looking at it. And it was so beautiful he began to shake. And as what happened, it, he lost his grip and he dropped it. And as the stone fell, it spun. So when it hit the ground, it hit on a bunch of sharp stones that were at the boy's feet on the shiny surface of the stone. And the, everyone in the crowd gasped, and the king said, no, it's going to be fine, don't worry about it. And he picked the stone up and turned it over and saw there was this jagged gash, like an eight-inch gash in the surface of the stone. 
the townspeople began to yell at the little boy, and the king said, no, don't worry. Inside, the king was heartbroken. He couldn't believe what had happened to the stone. But he said, no, don't yell at the boy. It's going to be fine. I'll go back to my village, and the royal rock polishers can polish the stone, and they can make the crack go away. Don't worry about it. But inside, he was heartbroken. So he turned quietly to his man, and he said, forget the rest of the tour. We're going back to our village. So they got on the horses, and they rode back to the village. They arrived in the middle of the night. And they went to where the royal rock polishers lived, and they woke them up and they said, you've got to make the stone beautiful again. Please take your finest cloths and polish it and polish it until the crack goes away. You've got to make it go away. So the royal rock polishers took the cloths and they polished and they polished and they polished. But after days and days of polishing, the crack was so deep in the surface of the stone it wouldn't go away. So they called for other rock polishers to come from all over other kingdoms, and they came and they polished and polished and couldn't make it go away, and the king fell into a depression, and he went into his home and didn't come out for days at a time. And the townspeople, were, everyone in his kingdom was so worried about him. And then finally, the wisest man in his village went to his door and knocked on the door, and he said, Your Highness, I know of some very wise people, some very wise men who live far away, over the mountains and across the rivers, and they're so wise, maybe they can make your stone beautiful again. So the king put the stone in the pouch, and he and a few of his men started a long journey until they arrived at the village where the wise men lived. And they went to the wise men, and they showed them the rock with a crack in it, and they said, can you make it beautiful again? Can you make it beautiful again? And the wise men said, we'll have to discuss it. And they went into their home, and they came out about an hour later, and they said, we can make the stone beautiful again. We can make it more beautiful than it ever was before, but you need to trust us. And the king said, I do trust you. And the wise men put the rock on the ground and they sat around it and instead of polishing it, they took out sharp stones and started scratching the surface of the stone. And the king's men said, stop, stop. And the king said, no, I trust these men. I trust them. And the men worked on it for several hours, scratching the surface of the stone. And then they took the stone and they went over to the king and they handed it to him. And the king looked down at it and what they had done was, instead of trying to polish the crack away, they had taken sharp stones, and at one end of the crack, they carved a beautiful rosebud. And all along the sides of the crack, they carved beautiful thorns and leaves. So what had been an ugly crack in the stone was now the stem of a beautiful rose. And the stone was more beautiful than it ever was before. And the king said, how can I repay you? And the wise men said, there is no need to repay us. We only took what was once so beautiful and used our tools to make it beautiful again. That's the mission of special education. If you think your job in special education is to make the disability go away and polish it until it disappears, you're going to be very disappointed. We're talking about neurologically based deficits. The neurological system in the body is the only system in the human body that cannot repair itself once it's damaged. Our job as parents, our job as special educators, our job as advocates is not to try to make the problem go away, but to take the tools that we've learned and to make them beautiful again. The preschool development of most, most LD children is largely uneventful. It's not until they get to school that their world begins to fall apart. Take the tools that you've learned and take that stone and don't try to make the crack go away. Don't try to polish it away. It's there forever. But take your tools and make them beautiful again. Thank you very much. Thank you. I've enjoyed this opportunity to revisit Fat City with you. The goal of the original workshop was to sensitize parents and teachers to the struggles that these kids face in class every day. The goal of this project was to take that sensitivity and put it into action by giving you strategies that you can use with this child in order to help him to reach his full potential. 
The child with a learning problem is at great risk. He fails in school every day, and that failure generalizes to the playground, to recess, to the Boy Scout meeting on weekends, and to visit to grandma's on Sunday. We shouldn't be surprised at this. If there's one thing you choose to recall and to use from this production, let it be this, that the child goes to school for a living. That's his job. He does it six hours a day. It's his entire self-concept. It's his entire identity. When you meet a child in your neighborhood you haven't seen for a while, what's the first question you ask? How's school? And today we've talked about that 10% of the children in the United States for whom the answer to how's school is not very good, thank you very much, not very good at all. We're constantly trying to make changes in these kids, but if a real meaningful, lasting change is going to occur, the first change needs to come from us as parents and teachers. We need to make a paradigm shift when we view this child. We need to change one word when we talk about the child with learning problems. It's a verb. We need to change the verb is to the verb has. We need to recognize it's not that the child is a problem, although it seems that way because he takes up much more time, energy, and resources than the other kids. But it's not that he is a problem. It's that he has a problem through no fault or choice of his own. And until we make that meaningful paradigm shift and recognize that the child has a problem, we'll never be able to help him to reach his fullest potential. In today's society, we simply don't have any children to waste.